Well, we continue with our series in Acts, Can It Happen Again? Can a group of 150 or less change the world? Can we set the world on fire? Can it happen like it did in Acts? And I think we can. I think we can change our community, our neighborhoods, northwest Arkansas, and the world if we'll just catch a glimpse of what's happening in the book of Acts. Today, we, our title is The Unexpected. Hope everyone has a, uh, a sheet with you. If you would, everybody got one of those, an incomplete outline. If you don't have one, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. All right, everybody's got one. Well, we're in Acts chapter 12. Well, Keith, we were in Acts chapter 15. Yes, 11 and 15 went together, but I'm going to back up, Russ, and we're going to go back to 12. So turn your Bibles, if you don't mind, over to Acts chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's one in front of you in the pew. And then if you want to, if you don't have one and you want to make one your own, we have one in the back right behind uh, Lance and Melissa back there. And we'd love for you to have a Bible if you don't have one for your own. This is a take notes, mark in, gloss your text, highlight your Bible uh, study in the book of Acts. A little bit of geography. Now, we're not going to have a lot of geography this morning, but what we do have is very important. You see, this is the territory of Herod Agrippa I. And everything that you see that I've outlined here in red is, is his territory. He was the supreme ruler over this area in red. But I want you to note on your outline, there's two blanks there. What's missing is Tyre and Sidon. And guess Whose jurisdiction is not in Tyre or Sidon? Herod Agrippa's. Herod Agrippa did not have control over Tyre or Sidon. It's in Phoenicia. Now, what area was the capital area of Phoenicia at this time? Was Antioch. And whoever the Roman head was in Antioch would have control over these two cities. And in these cities, we had large communities of Jews. That'll become very important in our story. So mark in, you've got two blanks there, one for Sidon and one for Tyre. Now let's go to a little bit of history. We have a whole lot of Herod's in the Bible. Have you ever wondered how all these Herod, this Herod, when I was a child, how this Herod could die and then come back? Because we see him dying in, in Matthew 22, or, or Matthew 2 and 22, but then he's back. And I'm like, well, how is this possible? Well, there are many Herods. Herod the Great gets the main title. Okay, when you talk about Herodians, we're talking about people who are following, who are giving their loyalty to this line of kings. And they were, they were a father started with Herod the Great, and they flowed to sons and grandsons and grandsons' brothers. So let's look at these guys. First, Herod the Great ruled between 37 and 4 BCE. The, he was the king during the birth of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 2, 
He's the one that spoke with the wise men. He's the one that refurbished or rebuilt the second temple. He didn't actually rebuild it, but he added on to it. He, he, he refurbished it. He made it grander than what it was. And then we have Herod uh, Archelaus. And Herod Archelaus ruled between 4 B.C. and 6 A.D. And he ruled over Judea. He is the king during the time and the return of Jesus and his family to Egypt in Matthew 2 and 22. And he was, he despised or had bad uh, relationships enough with the Jewish people and with this idea of Jesus being the Messiah uh, that that, uh, Joseph and Mary won't reside in Jerusalem. He is the son of Herod the Great and he's also, Josephus tells us, responsible for the murder of 3,000 men inside of the temple courts. Then we have Herod Antipas, ruled from 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. He ruled over Galilee. He didn't rule over the entire area. He only ruled over the Galilean area. He is the brother to Archelaus, uh, second son to Herod the Great, and half-brother to Herod the Second. He lived with his half-brother's wife, Herodias. Remember that? John the Baptist comes out and says, hey, you can't do that. You can't live this way with your your half-brother's wife. And that got John the Baptist beheaded by Antipas. Our clicker is not working well this morning. Here we go. Then we have Herod Philip, a.k.a. Philip the Tetrarch, he ruled from 4 B.C. to 34 A.D., and he ruled east of the Galilee. Now, I couldn't figure out a way to explain this, so I just put the map up there. Philip the Tetrarch only controlled this orange area. He was not very powerful, but he is in the Bible. He is the son of Herod the Great, half-brother to Antipas, and Archelaus. The word Archelaus is killing me, David. He is the first husband of Herodias. That's all he's really known for, but he's he's mentioned three times in the Gospels. Then we have Herod Agrippa I. This gentleman is important to our story today. He ruled in Galilee to Samaria to Judea. He, He was that first map that we saw all that Red, very, very powerful man. He killed James, the brother of John. He imprisoned Peter. And he was struck down by an angel of the Lord and eaten by worms at the end of Acts 12 in the year 44 AD. Now, this next point will be very important and you'll st- to our story, and you'll see this start unfolding as we read the story historians tell us that he positioned himself as the protector of the jews rick i think he had a messiah complex and we'll see this played out throughout the story and kind of written in between the lines as we go through chapter 12 but then it will really stand out in the end and then of course our last Herod is Herod Agrippa II. 
He ruled in Galilee, Samaria, Judea. And then Rome gave him just a small chunk of Syria near the end of his rule. He is the son of Herod Agrippa I. He is the last Herod mentioned in the Bible. And he heard uh, Paul's plea uh, for his case in Acts 26. So when Paul goes before Herod to make his plea, uh, you'll remember around Festus, and that, that starts that end of the story, this is the Herod that we're talking about there. The unexpected. Well, Keith, what are, what are you really focusing on this sermon? As Christians, we should be so anchored in Christ that nothing unexpected alters our walk with the Savior. We should be so grounded, Mary, in Christ and who we are. Nothing that's unexpected will ever still or steal our joy, right? But it's hard to predict all the unexpected things in life. And they're going to be unexpected things. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and 9. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have these treasures in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, look what Paul has to say about the unexpected. We're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but never, never abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. See, Paul, as we study him in the next few weeks, we're going to see a lot of things came at Paul, but they never crushed him. He never felt abandoned. It never destroyed his faith. He never despaired, even to the very end. Well, I've got to thank uh, United Healthcare for this commercial, which helps us to remember that some things are just unexpected in life. Don't look now. Chuck Norris is right behind you. I heard superheroes read Chuck Norris comics. I heard at night the boogeyman checks under the bed for Chuck. I heard Chuck Norris's reflection won't even look him in the eye. I heard when cops need cops, they call Chuck Norris. I heard when Chuck gets in the water, sharks get out of the ocean. I heard when Chuck Norris is hiking, grizzlies look out for him. I heard Chuck Norris rides the motor without the cycle. I heard Chuck <laughs> Norris wears a hat to protect the sun. I heard medicine takes Chuck Norris to feel better. I heard what actually killed the dinosaurs was Chuck Norris. I heard cats say they have Chuck-like reflexes. I think he still got it. I'll bet you a buck he catches this salt shaker. You're on. Hey, Chuck! <laughs> you owe me a buck. <laughs> you can't always see what's coming. Heard cats have chuck like reflexes. Too soon. Too soon. <laughs> it is hard to expect all the unexpected. We never know when it's coming for us, right? But we're grounded in something different. Uh, today, in our 
study, we're going to see some unexpected things in chapter 12, and we're going to see some very human reactions to these unexpected things. Break open your Bibles and let's read along. It was about the time that King Herod Agrippa arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now keep in mind, he's positioned himself as the rescuer of the Jews, as the protector of the Jews. What do the Jews hate more than anything right now? Christians. So what's he going to do? He has taken and he has either beheaded or ran through James with a sword. You've got to imagine right now that the Christians are starting to tremble, starting to be a little in despair, right? It may be a little panicked right now. Because who are the top guys? Jesus, Peter, James, John? Well, now they've killed Jesus, they've killed James, and they've got Peter locked up in jail. When he saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, he was big on that. He proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of the unleavened bread. This is during the Passover. So before the Passover, he's killed James, the brother of John. And that met with wild, great fanfare for the Jews. They thought that was great. And now the city has swollen. Josephus tells us now the city has probably swollen to close to a million people. And now Herod thinks, I'll just do the same to Peter, and I'll be on top of the world with the Jews. They'll know that I'm their protector. After arresting him... He put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. We got 16 guards. Russ, what kind of bad man, wild jujitsu, martial arts, ninja guy do you have to have to keep this guy under arrest? 16 guards. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before, so Passover's ending on, on Saturday at 6 o'clock, and here comes Sunday. Herod was to bring him to trial. Peter was sleeping. Now, i got to tell you, this says a lot about Peter, right? So... You know, your bro- you know your brother in Christ has just been ran through or beheaded. And you're in prison by the same man for the same, pr- for the same thing as being a Christian. And tonight ends the Sabbath. And you know you're about to get the same thing, David. Are you sleeping? I'm not. I'm shaking in my boots, but not Peter. He's sleeping. He's calm enough that he's sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. So he's asleep and on one side he's chained to one guard and on another side he's chained to another guard. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, 
get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrist. The angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Do you see Peter's near naked in this jail cell? Chained up between these two soldiers. And he puts on his garment and his, wraps his outer garment around him, puts his sandals on. He's ready to run. He's ready to move. Peter followed him. He's talking about the angel out of the prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And you got to be asking yourself, why, why all this security? Let me remind you. This is the third time that Peter's been arrested, right? The first time, Don, he, he talked his way out of it and got out. The second time, David, they threw him in jail when they went to go get him the next morning. Where was he? In the temple. This guy's a Houdini. We've got to keep him under lock and key. I've got to tell you, with as much security as they put on him, Herod Agrippa had to think there was something different about Peter, but he's ignoring it. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. I mean, it's just like an old black and white scary movie. They walk to the edge, and the door just opens up. Then they'd walk to the length of one street. Suddenly, the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself. You ever been there? You ever, you ever had a dream? This is the worst. You dream that you wake up and you're getting ready for school. And then you wake up in your dream and realize that you were dreaming. And then mom comes and starts pounding on you. And you've already gone through the misery of waking up three times just to find out the first two were dreams. And now you really got to get up and go to school. Well, Peter came to his senses, came to himself and realize, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John. We're talking about John Mark here, also Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Now this is where, this is where the comedy routine starts okay a bunch of tragedy amazement mystery and now the comedy Peter knocked on the outer entrance and the servant named Rhoda Rhoda means rose okay if it were in common English today it would be Rosie Rosie's at the door Rosie is probably somewhere between 12 and 13 years old she's a servant girl and typically who was put in charge of listening to the gate. She's kind of a sentry. She's not really security. She's like, she's like a doorbell, okay? Which means she's probably not real important as far as her position, and she's waiting at the door. That was part of her job. So Rosie's at the door. Peter knocks on the door, and she recognizes Peter's voice. And she's so overjoyed, she runs back in without opening it, exclaiming, Peter is at the door. 
It'd be nice to open the door, wouldn't it, Rosie? But that's not what she does. She runs back in to have these believers who are inside praying that Peter be released and look at their, look at their reply to Rhoda. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept on insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. Now, this is, this is comical, this is funny, but, but it also... I didn't understand this very well growing up. And I always thought, well, your guardian angel is, is, likes to take on your voice. Your guardian angel likes, but that doesn't make sense and we don't see any of that in the Bible. N.T. Wright believes when they said it must be his angel, what they are saying is, oh, he's dead. They've already killed him. And what he's doing is speaking to us from the grave. Rosie, you're hearing Peter, but they must have already killed him. And she doesn't take it. But Peter kept on knocking. You can just see him out there, frustrated, scared, pounding on that gate. And when they opened the door, they saw him, and they were all astounded. They must have just, just started just celebration right there. And Peter goes, now why does Peter do that? Well, we've got 16 guards. And history tells us that eight of those guards would have been the day shift and eight of those guards would have been the night shift. And then in that 12 hours, every three hours, they would have rotated their position, okay, that kept you awake and that kept you alert to what your job was and it kept you honest because when the guy comes up to relieve you if you're not there you're in big trouble so Peter probably only has a three-hour head start on the guards and he's keep it down I just got out he described how the Lord had brought him out of the prison James tells tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this he said and then he left for another place. Peter feels the tension so hot that he knows that if he stays in a known Christian's house, he's probably going to get them in trouble. So he goes off to another place. But before he does, he said, go tell James and the others. He wants them to know that he's been released, that God has taken care of him. Don't despair. God has rescued us. The James here is most likely James, the half-brother of Christ, that he tells to go. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as what to had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards. Okay, so this is an important part right here. Agrippa has to start understanding something spiritual, something supernatural is going on. Because what does he have to gain? What do these guards have to gain by telling the truth? Because if you lose a soldier under Roman rule, if you lose a prisoner under Roman rule, what happens? You're put to death. So why lie? 
so they tell the truth. Agrippa has to be thinking at this time, why would these guys go, why, why would they die for this lie? I got to tell you, I got to believe at this point, Herod Agrippa has to know that there is something mysterious and spiritual going on with these Christians. But he's got a Messiah complex, and he wants to ignore it. He ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea to stay there. Why, of course he did. He looks, he's planned this all out so he can be this this big wig who, who put Peter to death. Remember the whole town of Jerusalem is swollen in population. Everybody's getting ready to go home. They're talking about, oh, aren't we going to put Peter to death? Aren't they going to behead Peter today? And then we can't find him. He's eluded all of Rome. Man, Johnny, Agrippa's looking bad. So he runs home to his granddaddy's palace in Caesarea. Remember we studied this last week? Caesarea with the grand palaces, with the, the marble floors, the, the pools that, that have fresh water in that go right up to seaside. He goes there to sulk, there to try to figure out what's going on. He'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now remember, he doesn't have control over Tyre or Sidon, right? That's not in his jurisdiction. They now joined together and sought an audience with them. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted person, personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food. Now we read over this in English and it sounds like he's a little upset with them. If I'm quarreling with Anna, you guys probably don't get really upset about it. But that's not the Greek word here. It's through mamakeo. Through mamakeo means I'm mad enough to carry out war with great animosity. He wants to destroy these people. He wants to get at them. He wants to wipe them off the face of the earth. Historians believe that he was upset with them because Tyre and Sidon had a great Jewish population, but they were mistreating the Jews. You see what's going on here? He can't do anything with them, David. He can't attack them. So when you can't attack them, what do you do? You do what you can. You starve them out. I'll get at them. I'll change the political atmosphere against the Jews in Tyre and Sidon. I'll just starve these people out until they give in because he can't attack them militarily. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten with worms and died. But the word of God continued to grow and multiply. Josephus gives us more 
detail about what happened this day. The appointed time, or the appointed day, excuse me, that was the day that they were supposed to celebrate Caesar. And Agrippa had put on this royal robe, and Josephus tells us that it had silver sewn into it. It had silver threads that were reflective. And he stood in one of the great Colosseums there at Caesarea in the morning time and positioned himself perfectly where when the sun shone on him, it reflected into the crowd and it made him look divine. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he was a great orator and he starts to speak and all these people say, oh, he's not a mortal, he's a god. And the angel of the Lord strikes him dead for accepting that. Do you see the Messiah complex playing out here? Then it, these words, eaten by worms. Why, why tell us? Why does Luke tell us he's eaten by worms? I think he tells us he was eaten by worms because in two places, in Acts um, chapter 2, in Acts chapter 13, the next one over, the story is told twice about how Jesus did not decay, right? He says that the, the Messiah will not decay, and a lot of people thought that that was David. But then they're making the point, no, David did decay. David was not the Messiah. So Luke, the writer here, wants you to know, worms ate this guy. He decayed. He's not the Messiah. Now, why was this important? Because they were Herodians, people who had given their loyalty over to the Herods, and they believed that the Messiah was going to come through the line of, the Her of one of the Herods. And Luke wants you to understand, this is not him. He was eaten by worms. And then, but the word of God continued to grow and multiply. Remember John 1, 1, the word was with us. The word was God. The word continued to grow and multiply. The unexpected. Number one, recognize God's providential miracles all around us. We pray for things and things happen just like we pray for them. And then we never recognize God's providence in working those things out. How many of you can say this week something you prayed for happened and then you forgot to thank God for it? I know I do it. I do it all the time. Yet we love to quote Romans 8, 28, don't we? And we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. How many of you believe Romans 8, 28? Just raise your hand. If you're a doubter, keep your hand on your lap. Okay, I got 95% of you. Russ is two-handed up, so those of you doubt, Russ has got you covered. But do we recognize it? Do we recognize God working things out? Peter didn't at first, did he? Peter, Peter thinks he's in a dream. How about the believers 
Rosie goes in and says, Peter's at the gate. And they said, you're an idiot. Isn't that what they were praying for? Doesn't God work everything out? Absolutely. Two things here. One is sometimes I think we need to rethink what we mean by Keith. We don't believe in miracles today. And I said, well, what do you mean? And, and you say, well, nothing supernatural. And then I'm thinking, but didn't we just pray for a surgeon's hand to be guided as he does surgery on a loved one? Oh, yeah. Well, wouldn't that mean supernatural control of the surgeon's hand? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that if Lance takes a chainsaw to me tomorrow and cuts my arm off, and that very well could happen if Lance has a chainsaw because he's crazy with him. But if he lops my arm off, I don't think that Lance is going to take my arm and stick it back onto my shoulder and pray that it be healed and I'm going to be healed, okay? But I do want us to recognize that when we pray for something to happen, we're asking for God to intervene and get involved. And God does intervene and get involved. Amen? Amen. But I also love something about this story that Mark shows us in, in Mark 9 and 24. And it is the fact that we are on a continuum of faith. We are on a continuum of a faith where Peter is over here and he has so much faith, Jeremiah, that even on the night before he is to be executed, he's sleeping between two soldiers chained to them. But he's at peace. He has joy in his life still. In this position of despair, he has faith. And then on the other hand, there is this faith over on the other continuum over here that I think there's a God and I think he has my best interest at heart. But I'm not too sure, but I, I am sure that I'm going to put my faith in him. Don't we see that here? And the young man whose son is dying and immediately the boy's father explained, Christ said, if you have faith, anything's possible. I can raise your son from the dead. And he says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. You see, faith is a gritty, dirty thing, right? It gets tested and pounded upon constantly. And our goal is to have this ultimate faith on the other side of the continuum but truth is we're stuck somewhere in between praying to God I do believe help my unbelief grow my faith I don't know about you but I, I'm where this father is number two you pitch yourself against God when you want to be God you get in trouble when you think you're your own savior. When you think you're your own God, 
you pit yourself against God. Isn't that what Adam and Eve really wanted in the garden? Uh, they wanted to be their own God. The snake comes up and says, hey, you'll have, you have this tremendous knowledge if you'll just eat that fruit. You'll be like God. Sometimes I worry today if Keith doesn't want to be his own God and work out all his problems and all his things just the way Keith wants to work them out and just rely upon Keith and suddenly Keith becomes his own God. Now we see Agrippa doing that and it becomes obvious that he has a Messiah complex and he thinks he's in charge and he thinks he's going to be the ones to protect the Jews and to put down the Christians. But that didn't work out very well for him. You gotta wonder if when Peter wrote this next verse, if he wasn't thinking about Agrippa's death and his own personal life in between the chains that night. All of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. He remembers Agrippa's death and the way he died. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Do you think he was remembering that night where he had cast his anxiety aside and was sleeping between two soldiers because he had this great faith that whatever happened, no matter what happens, God is on his side, but he's also remembering, hey, you got to be humble. Because when you're your own God, it doesn't work out. Remember how Agrippa ended? Number three, never let the unexpected still or steal your joy. You got to remember how this story begins and how this story ends. It begins with tragedy. It begins with almost a panic. It was about the time King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. See, Peter was not the only one being arrested. Things are looking bad. He's killed James. But how does the story end? But the word of God continued to grow and multiply. Now let's take a look at that. The word of God. Are we talking about scripture here? Or are we talking about the word of God, Jesus Christ? We're talking about the word of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ continued to grow and multiply. But Keith, Christ is dead and risen and now ascended to heaven. How can they be speaking about Christ? Because we're speaking about the church, right? The church is the body of Christ. They continue to grow and multiply. In the Greek, these are two separate words. The word grow means to grow up. It's even translated in the Greek for the King James as grow up. You see, they're growing up. They're growing as mature Christians, as disciples. And they're multiplying, which means 
More Christians are being added to the church all the time. Why? Because they didn't let unexpected things steal or steal their joy. It takes us right back to where we began. His light shines in our hearts. Oh yes, we may be hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. You might be thinking to yourself, well, it didn't work out that way for James. Paul's not talking about our physical life here. He can't be. What he's talking about is our faith and our spiritual walk. Because you see, James' body was destroyed, but as soon as his heart stopped beating, as soon as that sword finished its process, James was in the spirit with the Lord. You can't, you can't kill the soul and you can't divide the soul away from God just because you kill it spiritually. You can never destroy the soul that is in Christ. Amen? You can't, nothing unexpected should be able to steal our joy or steal our joy. Maybe this morning you're not in Christ. And if you're not in Christ and have never known the joy of God, won't you make that choice today? Why wait? We can baptize you today. You can confess his name. You can live a life of repentance and faith in him. Or, or maybe today you've done just what happens to many people. Something unexpected. Some storm in life has stolen and stilled your joy. In this time to rededicate your life to joy and look in faith to the one who saves. These front pews are open for you. The elders will be at the back after the song. If we can serve you in any way, won't you come forward as we stand and sing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Jo